All right, good evening, guys. How are you? Hey, look, you got uh, some of you got these on your seats. This is to remind you to pray for Dr. Susan and her team. They're leaving for Haiti Saturday and coming back the following Saturday. So please keep in your prayers. We're going to have some of these passed out Sunday, Red Michelle in the, bull in the uh, bulletin. So uh, just a heads up, just so you can be praying for Susan and uh, her team going down to Haiti. All right, well, good to see you guys. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the, go the Gospel of Genesis? <laughs> Been a long day. Uh, Genesis, please. Chapter 11. Okay. Okay, then. Um, well, let me just say this. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 lay the foundation for the rest of the Bible, okay? Uh, I'm not overstating that. Uh, in these 11 chapters, four great events are recorded. We looked at three of them already. The creation of the universe, the fall of man, the flood, and then tonight, starting tonight, the attempted construction of the Tower of Babel. Now, let's read the first nine verses. We're not going to get them all done tonight because there's a lot here, guys, okay? And you know me. I don't like to rush things. Uh, but Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east they, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then and they, of course, is known as family, of course, because they, you know, we just learned about the flood a few weeks ago. And so they're still kind of moving out now from where they disembarked from the, uh, from the ark. Verse 3, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are, are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their languages, that they may not, be that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Uh, there's a lot going on there, okay? A lot we need to understand. First of all, we learned that at one time, everyone on earth spoke the same language. Now, I don't know if you know, realize that what that means, and that is that it allowed everyone, of course, to communicate with one another, which allowed them to really put their heads together. Okay, They, they thought as one. They worked as one. Anything they, they decided to put their uh, hand to in the way of uh, projects, uh, well, they would work as one, uh, get a tr tremendous amount accomplished, but the combined mental capacity of all the people on the earth working together to solve problems and build things uh, caused them to be almost unstoppable. Now, the Lord was using some hyperbole, I believe. I mean, not anything they put their minds to would be accomplished. But uh, it tells us that uh, with all their combined uh, wisdom and knowledge working together, 
one language, able to think uh, as one, work as one, they were able to accomplish a great deal. What did they put their minds and hearts to do? Well, to build a city and a tower. Now, tonight we want to focus on the tower primarily, but we'll talk about the city as well. Look, we're not going to understand what the Tower of Babel was all about if we divorce it from the one who led the people back then to build it. Now, his name was Nimrod. We were introduced to him last week in chapter 10. Let's look at chapter 10, starting in verse 8. It says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, uh, Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala, uh, and uh, Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Now look, just as we can't understand the Tower of Babel apart from Nimrod, we can't understand Nimrod apart from the curse that God placed on Canaan. You say, you're really losing me. Well, turn to Genesis 9, okay? We studied this a couple weeks ago, but let's reread verses 20 to 27. And Noah began, now this is right after the flood, maybe a few years, okay? After they disembarked from the ark, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine, knew what his younger son had done to him, and then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now, as I said when we studied chapter 9, some think that Ham simply... Dishonored, or his, dishonored his father as he was laying there, passed out drunk on the floor of his tent, mocked him, and therefore dishonored him. Others believe uh, that actually what happened was is that Ham committed a, a homosexual act upon his father Noah while Noah was passed out drunk on the floor of his tent. Whatever it was that Ham did to his father, when Noah woke up and discovered it, as we saw when we studied chapter 9, he placed a curse upon Ham's youngest son, Cain, and Cain's descendants. Why did he do that? You'll have to get the CD or go online and listen to the study. But I want you to understand something. He, he puts a curse on Canaan, one of uh, Ham's sons, uh, and Canaan's descendants, saying, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers, to his brethren. Now, we read in, the, in chapter 10, that was chapter 9, we move into chapter 10, we read that Ham had four sons. One of them was named Cush. Cush, being Ham's oldest son, seems to have deeply, listen, deeply resented the curse his grandfather Noah, which really it was God's curse through Noah, but the curse that Noah had placed on his younger brother Canaan. 
Now, you have to remember, they lived back then, even as the residents of this area in the Middle East still today, they live in an honor-driven culture. What do I mean? Well, in an honor-driven culture, if one member of the family was disrespected by anyone, it became the, the, entire, fa the uh, entire family was honor-bound to get even. Cush, as the oldest member of the family, I think felt especially honor-bound to do something uh, to rebel against this curse, so much so that by the time his son Nimrod was born, his resentment had become so strong and it festered for so long that he actually gave his son a name that means the rebel or let us rebel. And the inference seems to be that Cush trained his son Nimrod from the time he was just a small child uh, to lead a revolt against the God of Noah and reverse this curse. God had destined Canaan and his descendants to be uh, in perpetual serv uh, servitude to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. But here's what they're saying. That's what God said ain't happening, okay? We're not going to be the servants of anybody. We're going to be the rulers. We're going to be in charge is the idea. So Cush trained Nimrod from childhood to be a conqueror and to establish a kingdom that would exist, listen, in defiant rebellion against the God of heaven. And that, guys, is really the background of the story of Nimrod in chapter 10 and the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 9, which, don't miss this, they're both connected. You read your Bibles, it looks like maybe they're two separate stories. No, they're both connected, okay, both connected. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, it says, Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a hunter, excuse me, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. The word translated mighty there is a Hebrew word that refers to a champion. A champion. Someone who is superior in strength and courage. Uh, it was the same word used of David's mighty men who were his bodyguards, men of exceptional courage, strength, and bravery. But the Hebrew word giver is usually used of God himself in the Old Testament. In fact, it's used that way in Isaiah 10, verse 21, Jeremiah 32, verse 18, where God himself is referred to as the mighty God, the mighty God. The same Hebrew word is used to describe the Lord's Messiah or Christ in Isaiah 9, verse 6. We just passed Christmas. Of course, you all know this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Lord's Christ, Jesus, of course, is called Mighty God, who will someday rule over the earth. Well, Nimrod is a rebel, okay, who is also called Mighty Four or three times, excuse me, four times, I'm sorry, four times in Scripture, three times in Genesis 10, and once in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10, he is called mighty, a mighty hunter who attempts to establish himself as a ruler over a kingdom in defiance of God's coming kingdom. In that regard, guys, Nimrod becomes a type of another rebel 
who is going to arise someday. A conqueror that will establish a kingdom in defiance of God's kingdom and its king, that king being Jesus Christ, but this usurper who is coming to raise up a kingdom in defiance against God's coming kingdom, well, we know him as the Antichrist, the Antichrist, who shows up in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, at the very beginning of the final seven-year period, the tribulation period. In fact, he is the first judgment upon the earth. Because when Jesus breaks the first seal, here comes the Antichrist, which means the Antichrist will not show up until the 70th week of Daniel or the last seven years starts, which means the church is going to be out of here. I don't think we're going to see the Antichrist because he doesn't come until God's judgment starts to be poured out. We're not going to be punished with the righteous, won't be punished with the wicked. Peter assures us. Therefore, we're out of here, I believe, uh, in the rapture before the Antichrist ever makes his appearance on the scene. Now, I'm not saying he's not alive right now. I believe he is. I don't even know if we know him. We may know him. He might be a world figure somewhere, okay? But he won't arise to power until Jesus breaks the first seal and the church is already out of here. But we see in Revelation 6, verse 2, here he comes, okay? And we see him riding a white horse. That's why a lot of people think this is Jesus Christ. No, it's a usurper. It's the Antichrist. What is he carrying in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2? A bow. A bow. What is Jesus always seen carrying or what proceeds out of his mouth? The sword. Right. All right. Um, but he comes on a white horse. In that culture, if a king rode up to your city on a white horse, that wasn't good. That many came to conquer. Okay? The Antichrist, when he comes, will come to conquer, but he won't act like a conqueror at first. He'll act like a man of peace. The world is going to thrust him into power. He's not going to seize it by force. Now, eventually, as Revelation unfolds, we see he eventually shows his true colors and becomes a military dictator, bloodthirsty, killing millions who oppose him. But initially, he's going to start off as a man of peace. The world is going to put him into power because he's got superhuman intelligence. He's, he's really uh, the child of the devil, really. Uh, very charismatic, very articulate, uh, has uh, miraculous abilities, supernatural wisdom, and the world is going to think this is the guy we've been waiting for. Of course, the Jews will believe he is their Messiah. The Muslims will think he's the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. The New Ages will think he's Maitreya Buddha come back, even as they've been looking for him for many, many years. But he's the usurper. He's a deceiver. But it says that he comes, and John sees him riding this white horse. And we read in Revelation 6, verse 2, He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, we'll talk about that more later. Going back to Nimrod, though, it says of Nimrod in Genesis 10, verse 8, that he began to be a mighty one on the earth. Nimrod doesn't start out as a very mighty conqueror. It takes time, like the Antichrist. It doesn't start out as a mighty warrior, conqueror. Uh, Nimrod, no doubt, started off as a politician, okay, uh, until he got, gathered enough people behind him and went out more and more uh, uh, fighting against different individuals and cities, conquering them. And the more he conquered, the stronger he got, the mightier he became, until he became a mighty one on the earth. And uh, this is what is meant by the phrase, verse 9 of Genesis 10, he was a mighty hunter. 
before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The idea is that Nimrod wasn't a mighty hunter of animals. He was a mighty hunter of men. He was a despot, a tyrant, ruthlessly conquering men and women, of course, and establishing an empire. I'm convinced he wanted to establish a world empire. And at that time, he did establish the world empire at that time, okay, because the known world wasn't very big at that time, okay? People still had migrated across the face of the earth after the flood. So where most of the folks were, he was the ruler of that area, okay? But he was a despot. He built four cities in Shinar, which later uh, was later where Babylon stood, and four more in Assyria. So that's kind of the area of his influence, okay? Modern-day Iraq, basically, which southern uh, uh, Iraq, uh, the Babylon area, and then, of course, northern Iraq and up into uh, the north there uh, was where Assyria was, okay? So that was his area of influence. But listen to me. The capital of his kingdom was where he built or started to build this tower that later became known as the Tower of Babel, a place that later became Babylon. Now, you have to understand something. Nimrod was no fool. I believe he was endowed with supernatural intelligence. And he rightly understood that every empire needs a capital as a way to unite its citizens politically and a center of worship to unite the people religiously. And so Babylon became both a political and a spiritual center in Nimrod's kingdom. Now that's exactly what the Antichrist will do someday. He's going to unite the world in a one-world government and a one-world religion. He's going to combine both, okay? Here's the thing. God will eventually destroy them both. In Revelation 17, God judges the world religious system. And in chapter 18 of Revelation, he judges the capital of the political or economic center of this world government, okay? But both are called in chapter 17 and 18, Babylon the Great. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about that next week. I, I, I can't get into everything tonight, all right? I just pray I don't confuse you too much because there's so much to cover. And I really didn't know where to start. I just kept praying, Lord, there's so much here. I don't want to jump all over and confuse people. Give me grace just to lay this out tonight and then come back and then kind of lay the rest out, all right? Because there's a lot here. And we need to kind of look at it, all right? Uh, where do we start? Where do we start? Well, and let me just say this. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18, with the one world government and the one world religion, listen to me, that is the ultimate fulfillment of what Nimrod started in Genesis 10 and 11. It, it's still around, guys. We're going to see that next time. All right? It hasn't gone away. What he started, six, well, I don't know, maybe 5,000 years ago, is still going on today. He's gone, but what he started lives on because it was satanic at its core. Again, it's hard to know where to start. But let's start tonight with the Tower of Babel and work our way out from there. So Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. 
Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now let me stop there. The plain of Shinar, again, is where Babylon eventually was built. And uh, in that area, there's a shortage of stones, a lot of sand, not a lot of rocks. And so the people built, it seems, a large kiln or oven and made bricks and then they baked them. Why did they bake them? Because it tempered them and made them very strong. Of course, this speaks of an advanced architectural technology indicating that these people were very intelligent. Listen to me. Maybe even infused with demonic intelligence. Okay? We don't really know how they built the pyramids back then. Uh, from what I understand, some of those stones are so uh, large that we can't even move them today with the equipment we have. And to build the Great Pyramid in uh, Egypt there, you would have to lay one stone every three minutes for like 20 years. And these stones were laid, cut and laid with such precision you can't get a butter knife in between the cracks. We don't know how they did that. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was a demonic-infused intelligence and even a supernatural empowerment that went into building the pyramids and, of course, this tower that we're talking about tonight. Okay. But in verse 3 we read, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had, bricks, they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Now, uh, this would be like an asphalt cement, which is a mixture of bitumen, which is an oil-based substance, and then other uh, aggregates like sand and some other things. They are, they're mixed together, and they're heated together. And as they're heated, they bind with each other and form a compound, from what I understand, it's extremely uh, powerful if you wanted to cement things together. And that's what they did, waterproof, obviously, all right? So they used this asphalt uh, cement. It's like a concrete material uh, to, uh, uh, to put between these stones as they were building this, this tower. It says in verse 4, And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, several things we need to see. First of all, as we've already talked about, uh, their desire was to first of all build a city that would serve as a capital for Nimrod, Nimrod's kingdom, and then a tower that would, be, uh, that would serve as the center of their religious worship. Both would be built in defiance against God. Of course, the true and living God was the only one who deserved to be worshipped, and um, they were not going to do that. They were going to build a city. Eventually, he would call Jerusalem by his name. But this would be a city that was built or going to be built in total defiance uh, against God. Uh, God had commanded the people to be fruitful, multiply, scatter, and to spread out and uh, repopulate the earth. But a large group of them, probably a good number of them were the descendants of Canaan, the cursed family, decided we're not going to do that. God wants us to spread out. No, we're not going to do that. Because then our numbers would be, our power would be limited. If we stay concentrated, we're stronger. So we're going to stay right here. They decided to defy God's command, a command and unite with Nimrod in building his city and tower. Listen to what it says. Look what they say in verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. The idea is we don't want to be called by God anymore. We don't want to be associated with him as our creator. We want to, I'm paraphrasing of course, we want to basically be the gods of our own life. We don't want to be called by his name, all right? We want to do our own thing. 
lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, as I said, their capital city became Babylon, which grew up around a tower that we have come to call the Tower of Babel. What exactly, what exactly was this tower? And did they really think they could build a tower that would reach all the way up to heaven, as the King James Version seems to indicate? Um, what is this thing? I mean, these were not stupid people. Could they really think, did they really think they could build a tower that would reach up to heaven where God is? Well, first of all, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat, a ziggurat. There are many ruins of ziggurats in the Tigris-Euphrates valleys. In fact, uh, archaeologists will tell you that ziggurats were built by the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Elamites, the Akkadians, and the Assyrians. Listen, all for the purpose of worshiping their various deities. These were towers of worship. Now, some ziggurats were round, like the Tower of Babel. Many others had a square base and sides that sloped inward as they moved upward like a pyramid. You can go online, and I did this today. They are all over the place over there. Uh, different styles, but all basically the same. All, right? all of them had steps or ramps that led from the bottom to the top. Because unlike a pyramid, a ziggurat was purposely designed to allow people to ascend to the top. Okay? Uh, unlike a pyramid. Okay, that was the whole purpose of the ziggurat because a pyramid is not flat on top, but a ziggurat is. And the idea is it's flat up there and it contains an altar, which in certain instances were used to offer human sacrifice. But the whole idea was that the ziggurat was a worship center that didn't literally reach up into heaven but was a tower that was lifted up and reached up into the heavens. Like we would say a skyscraper today reaches up into the sky. That's the idea. They weren't building a tower that would actually reach up into heaven where God dwells. It was a tower that reached up into the heavens, into the sky, where they could ascend to that, that tower and uh, conduct worship. What would they do? They would worship the sun and moon and stars. In fact... And there's a lot of information about this, guys. Again, I waded through uh, tons of stuff to try to distill it down to some, some form where, you know, we're not going to get on, down rabbit trails that are not going to go anywhere, okay? There's so much information about this period. But, in fact, there are those that point out that in the Hebrew, instead of saying that they wanted to build a tower whose top is in the heavens, as your King, New King James says, they say the real translation should become, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, the top of which will be dedicated to the heavens. Or even that the top would have a representation of the heavens upon it. You say, what does that mean? Many believe that what was actually on top of this tower was a zodiac inscribed on the top, which was flat, okay? A place of worship, even even uh, human sacrifice, but um, uh, a tower that was dedicated to the heavens that had on it, uh, on the top of it, inscribed a zodiac, a zodiac, okay? Here's the thing. Uh, history tells us, and I really believe this is what's go going on here, okay? History tells us that astrology, which focuses on the study of the zodiac, originated in Babylon, in Babylon. 
In fact, one author, historian, said, and I quote, Turn to any book on astrology and you will find that it was the Chaldeans, another name for the inhabitants of Babylon, who first developed the zodiac by dividing the sky into sections and giving meaning to each on the basis of the stars that they found there. A person's destiny is said to be determined by whatever section or sign he is born under. From Babylon, astrology passed to the empire of ancient Egypt, where it mingled with the native animism and polytheism of the Nile. The pyramids were constructed with certain mathematical relationships to the stars. The Sphinx has astro astrological significance. It has the head of a woman symbolizing Virgo, the virgin, and the body of a lion symbolizing Leo. Virgo is the first sign of the zodiac. Leo is the last. So the Sphinx, which incidentally means joining in the Greek, is the meeting point uh, of the zodiac, indicating that the Egyptian priests believed that the starting point of the earth in relation to the zodiac lay in Egypt on the banks of the Nile, end quote. Now, unfortunately, the Jewish people, having spent so much time in captivity in Egypt, became infected with these practices and brought them with them when they made their exodus out of Egypt under Moses and eventually entered the promised land under Joshua. Guys, many people believe, and we've touched on this when we studied Genesis chapter 1. So if you're interested, I'm only going to touch on this lightly. Um, you can get uh, study number 5 of Genesis if you're interested. But many believe, again, we're talking about a religion that was established in defiance of God. Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan is a, is, wants to pervert what God has created, Okay. Many people believe that the Zodiac is actually a perversion of the Hebrew Maseroth. What is that? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, you might as well turn there, you're in the neighborhood. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Of course, those lights are the sun, moon, stars. The moon doesn't actually have, it's not a light source, but it reflects the light of the sun. But uh, that's what God's talking about. That he made these celestial bodies to be in part for signs. The Hebrew word for signs is oth, meaning beacons or signals. And suggests that the stars especially were placed in the heavens by God in the universe to serve as a beacon, listen, to guide the people of earth in a particular direction. You say, all right, uh, that begs the question, well, what direction? And for that matter, what did God want to signal or announce to the inhabitants of earth through the stars? Well, many in our culture and around the world, of course, believe the stars were given as astrological signs. As we just said, we just read that from that one historian. Um, astrological science will announce important events or simply to predict a person's future. However, astrology is an occult pagan practice and all such forms of soothsaying and divination and fortune-telling are strictly forbidden in Scripture. Deuteronomy 18, Isaiah 7, and so on. We know that Satan is a counterfeiter, as I just said. He's a counterfeiter of God's truth. And so many see the Zodiac as a satanic counterfeit of the Hebrew Maseroth. What again is the Maseroth? 
Well, the precise meaning of the word is not sure. It's uncertain. But in its context from Scripture, it has something to do with the constellations. Turn to Job 38. And let's read verses 31 and 32. where God is speaking to Job. And he says, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades, or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season, or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? These are constellations. Okay, What is the Maseroth exactly? Well, there are many who believe that the stars, and in particular the constellations, were placed in the heavens by God to point to and announce to the people of earth the gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. There's an interesting, if not cryptic, verse in Galatians chapter 3 that kind of plays into this subject. Let me read it to you. Galatians 3, verse 8. says, And the scripture, for, this is Paul now writing, okay? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let me read that again. This is Paul the Apostle, okay? Not some nut job. This is Paul telling us that God actually preached the gospel to Abraham. How did he do that? Well, first of all, let me say this. That Abraham knew the gospel seems fairly certain from Genesis, which we're going to study chapter 22 eventually. And remember how that when God had... Uh, Abraham go and offer Isaac, which he never really did. God stopped him. But as he takes Isaac up the mount, which today, Mount Moriah, Calvary, the very mount that Jesus was crucified on uh, thousands of years later, God said to him, you know, take your son Isaac and go three days journey to a mount that I will show you. When they got there, God says, this is the mount. All right, we know it today is Calvary. And so Abraham took Isaac up this mount. And Isaac was not a little boy of about seven, eight, or nine, as the Sunday school books show. He was probably around 33, which meant he was a willing sacrifice. He could have overpowered his father, who was very elderly by this time, but he went of his own free will. Okay? Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the, for the sheep. So Abraham walks up on top of the mountain. And of course, Isaac, as they're starting out, says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice and we have the fire, but where is the offering? Where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say? Son, God will provide himself a lamb. That's our first indication. Abraham knew uh, what he was doing. He was acting out prophecy. Gets to the top of Moriah. He ties... Uh, Isaac to the altar, takes out his knife and is about ready to plunge it into Isaac's chest when the Lord speaks and says, Abraham, don't do that. Now I know that you love me. There's a ram that's been caught in the thicket. Take the ram and offer the ram uh, in Isaac's place. God never ordained human sacrifice, ever. Uh, it was a test, okay? And he would never have let uh, Abraham go through with it. But as Abraham now is, offers the ram, he calls the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. 
And then he says, in the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. He knew that another son uh, of a father who loved him would someday be offered on that very place. How did Abraham know? How did he know this? How did he uh, understand the gospel that God would provide himself a lamb that would someday be seen in that very place? Many believe it was because God had preached the gospel in the stars to Noah, Noah, yeah, Noah and Abraham and all the others. If you're interested in this, because we went through the signs, some of the signs of the Maseroth, and of course the Zodiac is a satanic ripoff, okay? But we, in lesson five, we went through some of this thing. It's, it's uh, you know, a lot of people believe in what is called the gospel in the stars, okay? And that uh, God actually preached the gospel beforehand to uh, Abraham. Now be careful, because... Um, there are those that reject this gospel in the star thing because they believe we're saying that God that we're saying that God preached the gospel through the zodiac. No, God doesn't use occult things to preach the gospel, but He did. He He can and does use things like the Maseroth, which Satan then counterfeited and perverted into the zodiac, uh, and that's why God denounced, in the strongest terms possible. He forbid his people from practicing any kind of astrology, uh, the worship of the stars, even if they were trying to worship him by doing that. See, not all the Jewish people, when they worship these, the sun, moon, and stars, uh, some of them believe they were actually worshiping God. And that's why God said in the law, Exodus 20, he said, look, I don't want you to fashion for yourself anything in heaven above, earth, uh, on the earth, or beneath the earth, to fashion into a God to use to represent me. Because my presence fills the universe. And anything that you reduce me to is a false image. And therefore you're worshiping a false God. So God says, even when it comes to me, you do not fashion uh, anything uh, out of stone or wood or, or you know, precious metals to represent me. Okay? Ultimately, God knew that the pagans, when they worshipped the sun, moon, stars, and so on, they were really worshipping Satan and his demons, who were masquerading as these planetary deities, all right? As the people would sacrifice and worship these, these gods of, this, of the heavens. And things would happen on their behalf, and their crops would be blessed, and so on. They thought they were worshipping gods. They were just worshipping demons. Remember what Paul said? The things that the pagans sacrificed to idols they're really sacrificing to... Demons. It was all occult worship. They didn't. A lot of the people didn't realize that what they were doing. But God denounces this practice because it really is just the people worshiping the creation, rather than the Creator. And by the way, witchcraft is is that way. Witchcraft is um, is not Satanism. Okay, witchcraft is a nature worship thing. It, it's where Wiccans worship uh, the creation rather than the Creator. All right. More and more people are getting into this. In fact, this whole obsession with Mother Earth, okay, uh, Gaia worship, all right? Uh, God always judges man's idols. He did so in Egypt. Every one of those plagues was poured out against one of the gods of the Egyptians. Revelation, God pours out his judgments against the planet because it becomes it has become an object of worship. 
So he, he messes it up bad, okay? Splits it open. That's okay. He comes back and recreates it, makes it beautiful again, but he destroys the first creation and makes a new heavens, a new earth, and a new creation. We're all going to live forever, all right? Um, but God knew that, and the thing about it was, guys, as I said, they spent so much time in Egypt, and the Egyptians got, were, were into this whole astrology thing that the Jewish people picked it up, brought it from Egypt into the Promised Land, and started to do it there. But before they actually entered the Promised Land, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is, re, is recounting the law, he's repeating the law a second time. Deuteronomy means the second law. It's just the law given a second time, actually, because Moses won't be going with them into the Promised Land because he, he disobeyed God at the waters of Meribah. So he addresses the people one last time before Joshua takes them in. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, why don't you turn there? Listen to what God said. They're not even in the promised land yet. Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. God said, and take heed. Lest you lift your, this is when they get into the promised land, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, and you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. You can go on and read that on your own, but God is warning them. Look, when you enter the promised land, see, God knew that they were not going to drive out completely the inhabitants of Canaan. What's, what's the name of the promised land? The land of Canaan? Who was cursed? Canaan and his descendants. This was their area, okay? This was the descendants of those who helped build the Tower of Babel, who helped to establish this false religious system. They were entering into their land. God knew they weren't going to drive the Canaanites out completely. He knew that. In fact, he even said, if you don't do it, I'm not going to do it for you. You're going to have to fight these battles, and you have to fight them until you win completely by driving all the inhabitants of the land out. If you don't do it, though, I'm going to leave them there. There'll be like, you know, scourges in your side, and, you know, there'll be a constant source of irritation and stumbling block to you. So God knew. And he's warning them, even though he knows what's going to happen. When you enter the land and you feel driven to worship the sun, moon, and stars, don't do it. Don't do it. Because I will cut you off. I will stop. I will break my covenant with you. I will stop protecting you and providing for you. You have to remain faithful to me. Well, the people entered the promised land and did the very thing that God had forbidden them from doing. They began to worship all the Gods of the Canaanites, of course, the hosts of heaven. And they brought upon themselves God's judgment. Now, many centuries later, when Josiah became king of the southern kingdom of Judah, godly man, and he brought about a time of reformation. He began to clean the land up. Turn to 2 Kings 23. I mean, it's a real mess. And Josiah is a godly guy and wants to return the nation to God. So he knows he's got to clean up all these pagan places of worship in the land. Okay? Uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 5. 
Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. As you read your Old Testament, do you, read how, do you see how many times it's the high places are mentioned? Where the people worship, right? Those high places were the Jewish equivalent of the ziggurats, which got started under, under Nimrod. A practice they brought out of Egypt, okay? Occultism, uh, worshiping the, the, the constellations and all. And um, the Jewish high places were just the mountains, okay? I mean, why build a ziggurat if you got a mountain there, okay? What you want to do is flatten the top of it and then make it a place of worship. That's what they did. It was the high places, okay? But it was the, it was the um, equivalent, the Jewish equivalent to the ziggurats, which started under Nimrod. You see, guys, this is what, this is what we're going to set up for next week, okay? This is the, where we're going to go next time. Nimrod wasn't just a political leader. Now, he was a conqueror of men. He did build a kingdom on the earth. But he was also the founder of the first, first false religious system in the world. A system that Satan really started through Nimrod. And as I said earlier, a system that is still in place, still continues to this day. Nimrod was the first cult leader in the scriptures on the face of the earth. In fact, many believe when it says he was a mighty, a mighty hunter, what's really in view here is that he was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. Not just a mighty conqueror building a kingdom on the earth. He was robbing souls. He was conquering souls, which is so much more devastating, dangerous. I mean, a physical life is very valuable. An eternal soul, that's priceless priceless because it goes on forever and the idea is that nimrod started a false religious system that people believe was the truth but once they gave themselves over to it and believed in it and practiced it well it robbed them of their eternal souls so he was a hunter of men's souls in defiance he was a precursor to the antichrist who was going to come on the scenes and he is going to conquer men and women, yes, establish the kingdom on the earth, but he's going to establish a one-world religion which will rob millions and millions of their eternal souls as they pledge allegiance to the Antichrist, who at one point shows his true colors, goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and puts his image in the Holy of Holies and says, Now, I'm God, you worship me. And people line up to take his mark and to worship him, selling their souls to Satan. It's interesting that um, Babel means confusion, okay? It later became Babylon. Babylon, uh, the word means the gate of God. I think this is very interesting. Nothing is in the Bible by accident, okay? Uh, it's put there by the Holy Spirit for a reason. Listen, okay? Babel, confusion, became Babylon, the gate of God, very interesting to me that man's confusion became his religion. Man's confusion became his religion, which he believed would be a gate or, listen, a door that would lead him to God. 
There are many roads that people say lead to God. But Jesus said, no, there is only one way, and that's through me. He said, anyone who tries to enter heaven any other way than by going through me is the door. The same as a thief and robber. So man's confusion became his religion, which he believed would be a gate or a door that would lead him to God. And guys, Babylon became the place where all false religions got their start. Now we'll really dig into this next week, and I think we'll just do it one more week because it's it's pretty deep. And, you know, this is such an important topic that we just can't just breeze over it because, as I said, we're dealing with Babylon... <laughs> Mystery Babylon today, and it's going to culminate in a world religion and a world political system. So we really need to know what it's all about, okay? But Babylon became the place where all false religions got their start, the fountainhead of all false religion. In fact, in Revelation 17, verse 5, um, this woman seen riding this beast who is a symbol of the world religious system, John saw on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of all the abominations of the earth. So all false religious systems got their start in Babylon. And we're going to see what that's all about. This is the culmination in Revelation 17 of all false religions which God then judges, which God judges. And of course, while the Antichrist is spreading his false religion, in conquering over the people of the world through his political uh, military might, uh, God is raising up a people. Millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation period. They will not take the Antichrist mark. Therefore, they will not uh, swear allegiance to him. They will be marked by him for execution, and they will die by the millions. Revelation chapter 7, John sees a number. The angel says, John, who are these? He sees somebody he can't even number them. And John says, I don't know, you tell me. He said, these are those who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of Christ and are righteous. Okay, So it's going to be an incredible time of, yeah, people, millions are going to get saved, millions upon millions. But it will take, the Antichrist will um, kill these people with a vengeance. Some will escape, but most will be martyred, all right? Uh, we'll look at some of that next time, but I do want to just spend one more week looking at uh, Nimrod as a type of the Antichrist and this whole Babylonian re religious and political system, what it all means, and we'll study that next uh, week. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word gives us light. Your word, Lord, is is so relevant. People that say the, that your word is irrelevant what can we learn from a book that's 2,000 years old? Well, quite a bit. Since the God who wrote it and gave it to us is outside of time, you're outside of our time domain. And you know the, the end from the beginning. And have placed in your word the things that are coming that are yet future to us, but are coming. Many of them we're seeing coming as we speak and as we live today. So, Lord, the stage is being set for the coming of the Antichrist which means your church, well, you're getting ready to get us out of here. And we, we just pray, Lord, that you'll just give us grace to be faithful to the end. So whenever the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts, and we hear you say, come up here, give us grace, Lord, to be faithful, 
to be a light. And uh, we just pray for our loved ones who don't know you. That, Lord, they would be saved before the rapture. That we would all go together to meet you in the air. Thank you, Lord. Bless these studies. Continue to bless these studies. In Jesus' name, amen.